back to another episode of Intrigue Explained, the show where two former diplomats yell at each other about foreign policy news for your <laughs> amusement and hopefully edification. My name is Dimitri and I am one of those former diplomats and with me is another one. John, welcome back. Thanks, Dimitri. Good to be with you. I'm in Chicago and the the spring has officially sprung here. It's kind of like in the high 20s and, and after a long grey winter, it is very welcome, I can assure you. Was Geneva's sunny again, but was, has been quite rainy and depressing. We soldier, we soldier on in the hardship that is life by a Swiss lake. Heroes that we are. Yeah, where, where we find the strength <laughs> is a mystery to everyone. John, before we get into the content, when you and I were starting off our careers in government, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, we sat through truly a lot of briefings, training, dire warning about the various ways that classified or secret data could be misplaced or stolen, you know, heard about having your email hacked, leaving things on a bus, all sorts of dire scenarios and their uh, potential consequences. I don't remember anybody during any of those meetings talking about an angry nerd leaking classified information to win an <laughs> argument on the War Thunder forums. Okay. Or some sort okay. of like... I, I was wondering where you were going with that. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to accuse you. This is actually interrogation. Or like the latest leak, which is... <laughs> some sort of military contractor trying to impress his Discord server's gun club community of gamers with, like, truly top-secret intelligence. Uh, have you been following the story, and what the hell? I know, right? I for, for folks who haven't seen this story, it was yesterday, actually, that it came out. Wednesday, the Wall Street Journal, I think it was, or it might be the Washington, Washington Post. Post. One of them got an exclusive... Washington Post got an exclusive with an underage, like a teenager, like a like a sixteen year old or something. Got an exclusive interview with him. Triple um, X No Scope Ninja Thirty Eight leaking to the Washington Post about U.S. national security yeah. vulnerability. Just just being like he was. I was in this group and this twenty something year old guy who obviously works in a fairly secret yeah. or, uh, installation, military installation, or you know outpost of one of the intelligence services. I don't think that's clear but had been posting and transcribing top secret documents for months yeah. since late last year. Um, and, and the thing here is that like, there's this weird, you know, you get Edward Snowden and Assange and these warriors for freedom. And, you know, you can have your views on those people, good or bad, whatever it is. But this guy doesn't seem to want to like undermine the US interest. He was just kind of like bragging slash enjoying the fact that he was privy to information that others didn't have and showing off to teenagers on a discord server it, it it's one of the like the most truly depressing kind of stories that i've heard in a while that like someone's leaking this kind of information to show off to their gaming friends it's like it's funny in a way but it's also really sad yeah and some of the consequences i mean this kind this is kind Huge. of top secret stuff you know i know we were talking about the, the leaks on the War Thunder forums where people were arguing about the tank specs of like Russian tanks from 30 years ago and somebody right. leaked secret design documents. And like, that's bad, I guess, but it's all kind of dated and whatever. This was act active Ukrainian- Actively positions. highly classified yeah, stuff. Yeah, like this is dangerous yeah. stuff. And he's leaking it to a bunch of people he's never met in real life who just happened to have all played- like the same war sim game he plays. And so, some of which were known to be 
foreigners too. Like it wasn't even like it was like, oh, a bunch of 20 dudes who I know are American, like armed force guys with me and they shouldn't be seeing it, but whatever. It was like they knew they were like Eastern Europeans and and people from Asia in there as well. So like it's, it's I mean, it's pretty hard to argue that he didn't know what he was doing. I, I in our, in our company Slack, I kind of like, <laughs> I took a bet. Like I reckon there'll be an arrest within 36 hours. Now this is public. Like obviously this guy, they know who he is now. Yeah. If the if the if the Washington Post can figure it out, I'm sure that the intelligence services have. And you can't imagine they're going to leave him out there much longer now that it's public. And I, I presume he's going to go to jail for a long time. I mean, I think really the lesson for intelligence services out there is don't waste millions of dollars on electronic surveillance. Just like hire a cute e-girl to jump from server to server and be just like, so does anyone like know any military secrets? And you'll be just shocked at what people will just, or just tell nerds they're wrong on the internet and people will just apparently break the National Security Act. Prove you wrong with, yeah, prove you wrong with top secret documents. I mean, you're making a, you you know, you're obviously (laughs) sort of joking, but it's like this apparently sat undetected. On the, on Discord groups or this one Discord group for at least a few months until someone shared it into another group and another group and another group and then it started to propagate and the New York Times got a hold of it. But it seems like obviously all of this stuff is classified, but it seems like the government wasn't aware of it for quite some time, which has got to be worrying, really. Yeah, I mean, I just think it just speaks to how disaggregated online communities are. That it is entirely totally. possible to just have a server that nobody's looked at because why would they it's some gaming server and it's got this stuff on it anyway i, I wanted i wanted to touch base that because it's just truly like the first time these kind of yeah. leaks happened on a gaming forum it was funny the second time it was still funny but now like what's happening and it just keeps <laughs> happening over and over again i think it's just a bizarre mm. thing to be happening in the 21st century two other related points would be one it's really difficult for governments to keep secrets when you have that many people working with clearances you can do everything you possibly can to you know and like i presume this kind of person doesn't come up in any kind of background checks as someone who's a threat to national security because they don't have any ties to your you know communist sympathies or whatever it is all all the traditional things but you know you got to start screening for like has a slightly inflated sense of ego and enjoys an online game i mean that You'd have to be more specific when it comes to government employees. Yeah. Um, so the first point is it's really hard to do this. And then the second point is I think the difference, I mean, it would be naive to think this doesn't happen in every government, like, mm. you know, classified leaks. The difference with generally with countries with a free press is that the public gets to know about these leaks and the government gets very embarrassed by them. But this is happening in Russia. It's probably, it's almost certainly happening in China, probably to a lesser extent. It's happening all across the world. It's just that often you don't find out about it because you know, you don't have the New York Times or you don't have the Washington Post with, you know, well-resourced investigative teams doing this kind of work. And as any journalist will tell you, a key source of information for investigative journalists is idiots with a little bit of access who want to impress people. Like that is that is totally. a key vulnerability for journalists, let alone security, security agencies. Spies. Yeah. We should probably move on from that before we just head slap over intelligence failures and how to stop them for 45 (laughs) minutes. We don't leak national security secrets on this show. And if you'd like to reward us for that by liking and subscribing to our content, telling others, or just (laughs) leaking national security secrets to us in the replies, uh, that would be probably really helpful. I don't know. I feel like that could be interpreted as a threat to the government. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> if you don't like it, we will. <laughs> I wish we had. Oh, damn it. Yeah, we don't know anything, famously. But before we move on to our main topic, which I know, John, you feel incredibly strongly about, I did want to touch base on something I read in, in Intrigue this week, mm. which is that the conflict in Yemen appears to have potentially turned another corner, hopefully in a positive direction. The first meeting between Saudi and Houthi rebel leaders uh, happened on Sunday, and they did seem to agree a framework for a two-year ceasefire during which they hope to negotiate all of the other outstanding issues. This follows very closely on a kind of d'entente between Saudi and Iran. Iran having been seen as a primary backer of these Houthi rebels in their fight against the Yemeni government of before, which is now based in Aden, previously had been based in Sana'a, which is the capital, which is now held by the Houthis. It's an incredibly mm. bloody and complex conflict. And I just wanted to see if you Perfect, had any yeah. any kind of quick takes, because this is, this is a conflict we constantly hear referenced, but I don't think many people know much about. Yeah, I mean, I don't have much more to add. I mean, I think the key takeaway of this is like, I'm I'm dizzy from the last six to 12 months of... Middle Eastern politics and the shifting geopolitical sands in the region. You know, you, you kind of, you. I mean, it's already a complex kind of place to understand. And you, you, you sort of had these benchmarks. You know, Saudi and Iran dislike each other, and and uh, you know, are waging proxy wars against each other. Israel dislikes Iran, and you know that means that Saudis and Israelis generally can collaborate on some things. Um, and, you know, in the last six to 12 months, it's really well, probably two years, if I'm being honest. That's that's all sort of, I wouldn't say been upended, but it's so much grayer than it used to be, I think. And part of that's China's influence in the region. But anyway, as you said, like Iran was backing the Houthis. Saudi was at war with, with them. Now that Saudi and Iran are kind of pretending that they're going to be friends, they never will be, but they're pretending it, then... The Saudis probably have a nice chance to kind of say, well, this was a conflict that we didn't really want to keep fighting anyway. Like it's, yeah, I don't imagine that they're thrilled about having to fight this very, very well-resourced rebel force on their border to the extent that they can sort of say, hey, Iran, tell your your folks in, in Yemen to cut it out and we'll cut it out in return and focus on bigger things. I think it's a good thing for Saudi Arabia. Obviously, it's a good thing for the people of Yemen who you, who you mentioned it you know, just been absolutely, the country is, you think, you think, you think about Syria and, you know, some of the other places that have been devastated by war in the last 10 years, Yemen is right there, if not worse than those. It's just, it's, it's terrible. So, and, I mean, anything, anything, even a ceasefire for six months, 12 months, two years, whatever they end up getting is, is unabashedly a good thing. But, you know, as for what it means for broader geopolitical movements in the region, I, Honestly, you know, it's anybody's guess as far as as far as I know. Yeah, and and for a Western audience, it's worth remembering that sort of the the US and, and other sort of Western powers are involved here to one extent or mm. another. Um, in addition to arming Saudi Arabia, they were quite explicitly, implicitly against the um, the Houthi the Houthi forces, which are uh, effectively an, an Islamic rebellion with as one of their core slogans, death to America, death to Jews. Um, these, this is not an uncomplicated uh, situation. Classic stuff. Yeah, you, the, the, you, you got to play the classic hits. This conflict is not, is not simple, and it is unlikely to become simple even after these negotiations, especially as these rebels continue to hold yeah. 
the capital. And it's unlikely that, you know, mm -hmm. if Saudi Arabia hasn't been able to dislodge them in eight years, they're unlikely to do it now with negotiations. So an entirely new order has to emerge in the country. So it's just, there's a lot to watch there. And it's something people should, should learn about if they can, because it's not talked yep. about enough. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, I guess that the fate of it, the fate of Yemen, or at least, you know, the, the if there's peace, the continuing peace relies on the Saudi Iran unfreezing, as it were, um, which, you know, I wouldn't be putting, if I was a betting man, I wouldn't be putting too much money on the stability of that. The longer that lasts, the better, but you know, yeah. how long's a piece of string, we'll see. Yeah. The second thing I wanted to touch base with you on actually leads quite nicely into our main topic. This is something that I wanted to talk about last week, but it was still in progress. China has just conducted yeah. three days worth of drills in the Taiwan Strait, potentially caused a lot of nervousness in Taiwan, and they did it right during a quite an important visit to the US. And I wonder if you could just share a few things on that. Yeah. So I think I think most people will be kind of aware of what happened here. It's um so Tsai Ing wen, the president of, of Taiwan, was, you know, going to Central America and I think South America, but I think mostly Central America on a ten day visit, during which she needed to transit through the US to get there, which provided a useful opportunity for Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, a Republican, to set up a meeting in California with Tsai. Uh, obviously, it was bipartisan. I should, it's an important thing to note that it was a bipartisan meeting because I think the US approach to China is pretty bipartisan where a lot of things aren't. He, she met with the Speaker of the House, obviously, who's uh, you know, the third most powerful person in the US, if you go by kind of rankings. By all accounts, the meeting was fairly, you know, predictable. Tsai said something like, you know, Demo our democracy is at risk and, you know, made her usual very strong defense of Chiwa uh, Taiwanese, not independence, very clearly not independence, but um, uh, what you would call like democracy and separate and autonomy, exactly, separateness from the Chinese government. And China, folks might remember too, Nancy Pelosi visited last, I think it was August, um, and that kicked off, you know, all kinds of of military drills from China and, and captivated balloons. the media's attention. <laughs> you know, immediately launched balloons. You know, thousands and thousands of spy yeah. balloons, exactly. It, it captured the media, that one captured the media's attention far more than this one. And I think, you know, the cynic in me says that August is a slow news month, so that, that could be a reason. But the the real reason probably is that there is a difference between a U.S. speaker going to Taiwan and a Taiwanese president going to the U.S. It's a little bit less offensive to the Chinese. But nevertheless, they launched three days of drills, as you, as you alluded to. These ones, I think, actually, in a way, were more provocative than the ones in August. I'm not a military expert, and perhaps there's military experts out there saying, no, they're not really. But this one mocked up a full blockade of Taiwan on all four sides of the island um, simulated missile strikes from Chinese mainland onto key Taiwanese targets, including their air defense, and really kind of demonstrated China's ability to launch attacks from aircraft carriers from the mainland and to cut off any assistance that Taiwan might get in event of a war. So in a way, it was a very clear demonstration of what China can do and presumably is willing to do. And then I guess the last thing to mention here is that the day those concluded, those drills concluded, the US launched their joint drills with the Philippines in the area, which were, I think, the largest, or no, sorry, I've got, I've got the quote here, a live fire drill at sea for the first time since the joint exercises began more than 30 years ago. So the, these drills between the US and the Philippines were live fire ones, and they haven't happened since the end of the Cold War. So you get this sense that the area is just getting hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter, which doesn't bode well, put it that way. 
No, I, I wish I had more more to add to that. What can you say looking at this kind of thing, except that the more China does drills like this that presumably go the way they think they'll go, the more there is a concern that they will believe that they can militarily take take the island uh, and do so at an acceptable cost to to themselves. They will believe that they potentially can take it quickly before an international response can, can muster itself. And then suddenly we are back into Russia-Ukraine three-day victory kind of delusion territory. And that makes things exponentially more dangerous for, for the region, for Taiwan itself, yeah. of course, and for the world. So it is, you know, each one of these things happens and then we don't go into World War Three or an invasion. And that's good. But we do have to remember that this could potentially be dominoes falling one by one, even if there are still a number of dominoes to go and each of these dominoes individually isn't the end of human civilization. It's got that familiar drumbeat, doesn't it, of, es- of, of escalation response, or not even escalation response, but just something response, something response, and that generally escalates its way, way up. And both sides think they're right. Both sides thinks they're, thinks they're the one responding to an, a slight from the other side. And I feel like history has a lot to say about that, that kind of dynamic. We don't have all, all day to talk about that. So what I want to do is do your job real quick and give you a perfect lead in to introduce our main story, give you the segue. And that's a, a quote from an article covering uh, French President Macron's visit to, to China recently. And the, the quote is, people familiar with Macron's thinking said he was happy Beijing had at least waited until he was out of Chinese airspace before launching their simulated drills and Taiwan encirclement exercise. So there's a lovely link from the Taiwan drills to our main topic. <laughs> See what you can do with that. I would also be pleased if uh, military exercises waited until my plane was out of the airspace. Uh, so I can see where the president was coming from. But our big topic today and what John is already goading me on, as you can see, is the broader question that I think President <laughs> Macron of France's visit to China and his remarks and, and interviews to various outlets, as well as Politico's quoting of those of those interviews has given light to is European strategic autonomy. I think President Macron basically expressed sentiments that are going to be interpreted in a million different ways and are like he's Sartre and we're all bloody first year philosophy students sitting at his feet trying to decode his wisdom. But what they came down to... How very French. Uh, merci. What they came down to was a broad dissatisfaction with a view of Europe as an extension of U.S. will, as subordinate to you and dependent on U.S. power, and expressing the broad wish to take steps towards a Europe that can stand on its own two feet, independent of U.S. power, and perhaps even taking positions on issues like the rise of China that are somewhat, if not significantly, divergent from the US position. A third way, as it were. Right. So a third way. So let me let me just cut in there for a second and just give some context for people who might be a bit lost. Um, so last week, uh, French President Macron and uh, Ursula von der Leyen, who's the, obviously the, the EU Commission president, both went to China. They both went to Beijing for nominally state visits. Now, the state visits went very differently. Macron was welcomed in Beijing with open arms. Um, he was welcomed, you know, full fanfare, you know, guard of honor, blah, blah, blah. The Chinese are very, 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 very good at, at uh, lavishing uh, luxury on people that they want to. 
Um, they're very good at protocol. Themed croissants. It's, exactly. They will have. They will have got well. I mean, the French have been famed for working in China. Danone now, I think, is one of the the largest employers in Shanghai or mm. employer of expats in Shanghai. Anyway, so I, can, I imagine there's plenty of French yogurt mm. and yo play running around. Anyway, point is, um, he went. Uh, Macron went to Beijing for a visit, and it was you know the Chinese really treated him well. Von der Leyen was there at the exact same time, and they treated her like trash. They barely met her at the airport. They, you know, she was excluded from a lot of meetings. And so what you were alluding to in your little introduction there was just this idea that the two visits were seen as very different visits. One from an EU president who had criticized China and therefore was received very poorly. And one from a French president who is trying to be the de facto leader of Europe, who was received very warmly, but also refused to kind of take the same hard line against China. You know, my, my, my little reference earlier was that he, as he left Beijing, Beijing launched those, those drills against Taiwan um, just after he'd left his airspace. So the bigger question here is, he, as you said, he's, got, he's going after strategic autonomy. He wants Europe to not follow US blindly into a conflict in Taiwan. And what we're going to debate is whether that's a good idea or, you know, we'll see where it goes, I guess. In case you couldn't tell from, from John's tone there, uh, he's, a, he's a huge fan <laughs> He's a huge fan of President Macron's position. No, John is going to very much argue the case that President Macron is flawed in his vision, whereas I shall do my best to defend the honor of France out of, you know, fraternity with the great nation. Uh, So, John, I think this is very much your topic. This was your idea. And I couldn't make you stop arguing with me before we even started filming. So so what... (laughs) We should have just recorded that. (laughs) Opening, opening, opening salvo. What is your number one argument for why the French vision or what Macron is laying out is the wrong path for Europe? Okay, so I, the context here is too, he gave interviews on the plane back to France that I think were picked up by the Western media and, and viewed as very, you know, perhaps unfairly viewed as pro-China. So let, let's put a bit of context around it. I, I got some quotes from the French language version, which I think was a bit more a bit more reasonable. He said his view of why he went to China and what the point of his dialogue with China was, one, to consolidate, you know, common approaches, blah, blah, but to support the principles of the UN Charter, to have a clear reminder of the nuclear issue. And I think that's referring to Russia, telling China to pull Russia into line with its nuclear uh, threats. Three, a very clear reminder on humanitarian law and the protection of children. I think probably they discussed that in the Ukraine context, but there's this idea that Xinjiang could be potentially included in that issue. And he said the fourth reason was a desire for a negotiated and lasting peace. And that is definitely on Ukraine. So that, that's why he said he went to mm-hmm. China. He also goes on to say, as Europeans, our concern is unity. It's always been my concern. We are showing China that we're united as Europeans and that it is the purpose of this joint visit with the commission president to signal that. Now, I guess that's the point I want to drill down on. If, if you were, as Macron says in his own words, and I think as everyone agrees, trying to show that Europe is strategically autonomous from the US that is open to charting its own course on issues like Taiwan, which is the big elephant in the room here, obviously. What worse way to do it than go and take a completely different line than the EU commission president and a different line than many EU member states and a different line than even Germany, I would argue, a a, a more conciliatory tone than even Germany, one of China's famous kind of most pro-China countries in Europe. What worse way to show that as Europeans, our concern is unity? I, I mean, just I'll just start there with that question and, and get your views on that. Well, I mean, I would begin if I were in President Macron's shoes and I didn't want to just deny that there had been 
different policies and I'm sure he will play that tap dancey game of, you know, actually we're on the same page and yada, yada, yada. But one thing to say is if France feels strongly about this in a certain direction, it's not entirely up to the European Commission president to get ahead of that unity. So it is not that France is out of step with the commission president. It's that the commission president is purporting to put forward a view on China that Europe as a whole has not yet embraced. So he would be saying, listen, if somebody's behaving inappropriately here and undermining European unity, it is the commission president who is usurping or, or trying to put forward a view that is not yet the collective view of member states. That would be argument one. Argument two is I think he would say, listen, the, I don't think anybody in Europe objects to the notion of lasting peace. I don't think anybody in Europe objects to the notion of cooperation with China on some issues. If perhaps some find, some in Europe find China more objectionable on some issues than others. I mean, everyone agrees that we should work with China on climate change. Everybody agrees that we should work with China on securing lasting peace in Ukraine. Nobody wants to see China slide in that direction. So he would say, hey, listen, uh, I don't think I'm that far ahead of where we are collectively. I just, I've put forward what many of us are, are thinking, and many of us are dissatisfied with being seen as the echo of Washington, D.C., on foreign policy. So why not let von der Leyen say that? I mean, the two trips could not have been more stark in there, which obviously was designed by the Chinese to do exactly that. They were The Chinese are very, very, very clever at this. And, you know, it's long been their policy with everyone to divide and conquer. Like their, their biggest worry when it comes to European relations is that the EU will figure itself out and speak <laughs> with one voice. So anything they can do to separate the countries and have individual relations with each country and then play them off against each other to seek, you know, to seek its own interest, it will do. So it's very cleverly managed to make sure that it treated France really well and the EU commission poorly. And you have to think Macron isn't stupid enough or that the French Foreign Service is smart enough to give him advice that that is exactly what would happen. Because if we can sit here in our living rooms and I could have told you that after being a diplomat in China, <laughs> they will definitely have known that. So why not say, okay, that instead of having that risk of, look, of looking like we're being divided and conquered, even if that's not the reality on the ground, which, you know, I, I'm not a European political expert, but... I think it is divided, but even if it's not divided, why risk looking like that? Why not let Ursula von der Leyen get, deliver those messages? I mean, have you heard her speak? Okay, fine. <laughs> but I don't think... I'm sure part of this is just Macron, I've never met the man, but certainly does have a certain vibe that suggests that he doesn't think there is any better spokesman for any issue that, than President Macron. Yes. But kind of setting personalities aside... The European Union's member states have not outsourced external policy to the Commission. There is a European Union external action service, but foreign policy is not a sort of unique competency no. of the, the EU. France is a G7 member, and as you said, France feels like there is a vacuum of leadership in the EU externally facing of the kind of sort of figures that can stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with a Xi or with a Biden or with a Putin, and he believes that that is France's natural role. Now, you can disagree with that, 
But I think if his view is of at least partially a French-led Europe, and that that is where European strength lies, it's entirely appropriate for him to take up this most sensitive of issue. Sure. And so then we come back to this idea of European strategic autonomy, which is this idea that Europe can, and I, and I think again in that interview, I don't have the, actually I do have the quote, the quote, it's a good one too. The trap for Europe would be that at the moment when it reaches a clarification of its strategic position, there's that very philosophical language from a French president, but the idea that, you know, before Europe's able to stand on its own two feet strategically, defensively, you know, all that kind of stuff. He says it's caught, the risk is that it's caught in a disruption of the world and crises that would not be our own. If there's an acceleration of issues, we will not have the time or the means to finance our strategic autonomy and will become vassals when we can be the third pole a third superpower if we have a few years to build it. So here's this idea that he clearly views Europe's future as a united bloc mm-hmm. that has the weight, the, def- the, the the economic weight, the defensive weight, and the strategic weight to basically be China, US, EU. And yet, like, if he thinks that, if he deeply understands that France can't act alone, because France, I mean, I think you and I disagree on this. France is is not a serious world player yes it's a p5 member yes it's got nuclear weapons yes it's got a reasonably decent army but in terms of when we're talking about balancing us and china it doesn't have no. a hope not until. only europe only europe combined with the kind of nato element can hope to do that and yet again if we're talking about strategic autonomy and that's the goal of macron's trip i cannot i, I honestly can't see how he didn't undermine the idea that europe speaks with one voice because as you said before like Europe doesn't agree. I mean, you might say that France is getting ahead of European sentiment. I don't think that's true. I think I think he's trying to force it down a way where, you know, there's very, there's a lot of disagreement behind closed doors and not even behind closed doors. But I just, I don't understand that. I, I just can't understand what he was thinking in this trip other than, and here's the key point that I think we should get to, is that France is terrified that cutting off China will massively damage, damage its economy. And it is trying to have its cake and eat it too. It's trying to rely on the US for its defense for a few more years until it can do it itself, if it ever can, which I think is a big question. But rely on the US for a few more years. And then when we're done relying on the US, we'll still have a relationship with China that we can exploit economically. This idea that, I think you said it in the lead up before we jumped on air, this idea that the rise of the dragon will kind of slide right by Europe and it can emerge out of the kind of conflict between the US and China, or at least competition between US and China as an untouched third power. But I, I just, I think that's so hopelessly naive and that he's going about it in the wrong way. Okay. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot to, to unpack there. There's a lot there. Uh, let me... And I'm trying to be very restrained and not just talk <laughs> at you, by the way. <laughs> I think people would listen to a John ranty monologue on against Macron. Well, if you tied them down and forced them to, I suppose. Whatever it takes to get, listen, whatever it takes to get those plays on Spotify. <laughs> no, very seriously, let me let me kind of tackle the, the really big meta question here, because I think that's that's what you're alluding to, which is fundamentally, foreign policy and strategic autonomy is about the ability of Europe to be able to make choices in certain foreign policy scenarios moving forward. At the moment, European reliance on U.S. defense is probably such that they don't have a lot of options in in certain circumstances, whereas in a hypothetical scenario, which you're right to sort of question whether it's possible, they would perhaps have more options. And what am I talking about here? Because I think it's useful to be specific. 
Let's pretend that Taiwan, that the Taiwan issue didn't didn't exist at all. That let's let's hypothetically say that there is just no island there. And so China is China and the US is the US. And so there was no imminent threat of invasion. The US would still view the rise of China as an existential threat and take ever increasing steps to combat the rise of China. I think we can see that very, very clearly now. I don't think you can say that the only threat that the US sees from the rise of China is that it might invade Taiwan. I don't think that's that's true at all. So from that position, if you're Europe and you're looking at that, you're going, do we view the rise of China and its potential threat to US hegemony and US interests with the same apocalyptic, all-consuming obsession as the Americans do? And I think the answer for a lot of people in Europe is no. But at the moment, if I were Macron, my concern would be, are we going to be dragged into supporting a full corp, a US full corp press on China trying to prevent their rise because we are so dependent on them strategically and because we simply can't function strategically without, uh, without NATO and the US umbrella and coverage. And that's, that's what he's saying Europe has to tackle. Yeah. Okay. And look, I don't. I, I look. I think the frame. I actually think the framing of if there was no Taiwan kind of makes my point for me because I think the Europeans see the Taiwan issue as a very limited issue of like, listen, if you just let China have Taiwan, then we can all get along nicely. I mean, that's a crude positioning yeah. of the. I, I think they would reject that violently, but well, no, I think, but I don't. But what I'm getting at is, I don't think they would say it's worth going to potentially catastrophic, catastrophic conflict to protect. Taiwanese democracy. That I think that's a very fair thing to say. I think they would say, you know, there's a lot of opaqueness around Taiwan's status as a country. T- China is going to go to war over this. Is this the place that we want to make a stand? I-, I think they would absolutely ask those questions. And in a way, that is basically like saying Taiwan isn't worth defending. Now, I don't think it's a wrong argument to make. I, I-, I think it's a very reasonable argument to make. And it's something that you need to be addressing and, and, uh, and asking very seriously. But I think the key that you said there in that thought experiment is if you take away Taiwan, America still sees China as a threat and Europe doesn't, then I think that's the key difference here, right? Like Europe fundamentally doesn't think that China is challenging the world order. America does. And, you know, I have my views on that. I'm, I'm certainly far more in the camp of, I think that it's very naive to think that China will stop at Taiwan. I think that they will, they want to remake the world in their own image and that's a very reasonable national interest for China to have. But I think, so I, I think you, you have to sort of sit there and say, okay, one, is Europe being naive about what it, the world as it is? And two, is it possible to, I guess, to, ride, to, to sort of skate between the US and China if they think a conflict is inevitable, right? Does three, does three I think Macron talks in his interview, does three, he said three or four years will be strategically atomic. Does three or four years actually buy them the space to then not have to get engaged and even before we ask that question what does being drawn into a conflict over taiwan look like europe has strategic autonomy no one can force the europeans to do anything they don't want to do like they didn't join iraq famously and rightly so i don't i can't i I, when macron says we don't want to get dragged into a quickening pace of conflict I don't know what that i honestly don't know what that looks like like are they worried the, the americans are going to sanction europeans if they don't get involved, I think that's a bit far-fetched. So what what does why why do you need to cozy up to China to avoid being dragged into it? I don't, that's not clear to me. On some of the stuff you said, first, I think that that question of is it worth 
defending Taiwan. Setting aside my personal feelings, I think if I was a European hard-edged, hard-nosed policymaker, when, when Ukraine was being invaded, it was right on our doorstep, and the line from everybody is, we can support Ukraine, but we can under no circumstances militarily defend it. We cannot put ourselves in a position where NATO or European troops are firing on Russian troops because that is risks World War III, it risks direct war with Russia, can't contemplate it. So their argument would be, well, you know, the Taiwan situation is, you know, you could argue whether it is murkier than, than Ukraine, um, but it, it's certainly not clearer than, than Ukraine. You know, that was a pretty like by the book violation of the UN Charter. Um, it was a sovereign border and we didn't get directly involved. So why should Europe put itself in a position? And that kind of leads to your last point about escalation, which is a US asset in the Taiwan Strait during some escalation of tensions does something that the Chinese aren't comfortable with. It gets attacked. The US invokes Article 5 of NATO. And suddenly we're off to the races. And suddenly Europe is forced to choose between taking part in a military intervention that it perhaps doesn't want to take part in and giving effectively walking away from a strategic alliance with the US on which they currently completely depend on for their security. And that is the situation that he wants to avoid. Now, I agree with you, four years is an insanely short time. But, but also, like, no, nothing he's doing now is going to stop that risk. Like, he's not saying America can't go there. So, like, the risk of, and I, you know, the NATO risk, I think, is a bit overblown on, on US ships in, in Asia. I don't think that would actually invoke mm-hmm. an Article 5 issue because it's not European collective defense. I mean, it, could, it technically yeah. obviously could, but I don't think it would. But, like, nothing Macron's doing is getting rid of that risk, right? Like, he's not, he's saying where, we don't want to get dragged into a war in, in Asia, Okay, well then you kind of have to leave NATO or convince America not to be in Asia. That those are the two options. But his point is at the moment leaving NATO is double unthinkable for Europe. So is he saying that in NATO. a couple of years hopefully we'll be able to leave NATO? He is saying that at the moment that that in a few years if Europe were to decide to leave NATO, it would have the option it would be possible. whereas right now it doesn't. Well, like, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, that's obviously, lo- lo- I mean, this is that's all obviously laughable, but I, 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 yeah. So that, that's an interesting point because I think I hadn't connected the dots with like the idea of like, oh, essentially you're trying to create a European collectivized defense that doesn't include the US. That's the goal, right? Like officially the doesn't include the US. To have one. It, it, well, so, so exactly. you're, you're creating a situation where you don't, where you may still be in NATO. I mean, you may still want to be in NATO, but you would well, have to get rid of Article 5. Of walking away from it. No, but you'd have the option of walking away from it. Whereas at the moment you don't. Right. Okay. Yeah. Fine. I mean, it's fine. Like this so, is the blue sky I think Ukraine of strategic shows, autonomy. Right. I think Ukraine shows that that's a long way away um, given the, you know, paucity yeah. of European um, <laughs> military ability to defend itself. On the other hand, I'd say Ukraine shows, Ukraine shows maybe it's not that far away because NATO was created to defend against Russia. And it turns out that Russia is a complete paper tiger. That well, this is this is where you and I have our most staunch disagreement. I think in the fact that I think if U.S. wasn't in NATO, Europe would be speaking Russian right about now. Obviously, I'm being dramatic, but I think that this really hard language. To very, learn. <laughs> it goes very differently if the U.S. doesn't okay. uh, actively Let's that defend we... Ukraine. But but I don't think it's very different to Taiwan. And where you said that it is a different situation, I think 
or it's a more gray situation, I think you said, or, you know, a more complex situation. I think it's only more complex in the sense that the Chinese are way better than the Russians at diplomacy and strategic <laughs> messaging. I think, I think the idea that they've spent a couple of decades delegitimizing China, uh, Taiwan yeah. and yeah. delegitimizing it as a sovereign, you know, okay, let's not call it a nation, but a sovereign people who do not want to be ruled by the mainland. And that's very clear. Mm. I don't think it is particularly different to invading Ukraine, um, you know, maybe legally in like no. in strict letters of law in the <laughs> UN charter, but not really. Uh, I guess what I meant was it's, you can certainly make that case. And I certainly, I personally agree with it. But I think the French case is that Ukraine demonstrated where the limits of intervention for the West are when a non-NATO mem- member is invaded and a democracy is threatened. And that right. limit so was support, then- but not defense. So what France is saying then, and I think it's absolutely saying this, is that if China invades Taiwan and America you know, goes to its defense, whatever it looks like, even if it's not sending American ships to battle, we won't even supply Taiwan with arms because that would be getting dragged into a war. It could be. And I think the... So like they're saying what we expect the world to have done to defend Ukraine, and we're annoyed that people aren't doing more in Ukraine because the war is in Europe, we won't do for Taiwan because it's not in our backyard. It's just just a real, real politic calculation of Taiwan is not in Europe's interests in the way that Ukraine is. And we will prosecute, no matter whether it makes us look like hypocrites or whatever, we'll prosecute the national interests of France slash Europe to the ultimate end. And in fact, interestingly, they sold 50 helicopters, Airbus sold 50 helicopters to China during Macron's visit and agreed to open up a new plant in Guangzhou. So not only will we not send military equipment to Taiwan to defend themselves, even if we won't get involved personally, we'll actively kind of like give in this case, and you know, it's not a great analogy, but we're, we're going to actually preload the Russian military with some of our equipment and build a, build a plant in, you know, Volgograd to, to kind of churn it out for them. Like, I mean, that's the, that's the analogy, right? And it's all pinned on this idea that what happens in Taiwan doesn't affect what happens in Europe. I mean, listen, these are the Europeans that bankrolled the entire country of Russia for two decades. through Correct. And, gas and have had their security bankrolled by the US. Yeah. So I think that this is, this is what it comes down. I guess if I were to make the strongest possible case for Macron's vision, it is basically that if Europe has some form of strategic autonomy in the sense that it is not as dependent on the U.S., for its collective defense and for its sort of strategic weight as it currently is. And I am skipping over just how hard that would be and the seeming absence of European well, consensus of how to get me, there. Let me put, this a, is let me put a quick pin in that mm-hmm. and just say, basically he sees European, European collective defense on its own without the US as being contingent on itself developing an indigenous arms or you know developing its indigenous arms manufacturing capabilities and then being able to sell that to anywhere in the world and that the US is a threat to that because it has the dollar and can sanction it if you know, China's a, if, if they start sanctioning China, Europe's at risk because then it couldn't sell its military equipment, which means it can't develop its own defense, right? It's all tied together. Yeah. Um, and you can certainly see, you know, you were talking before as like, oh, is the US going to sanction uh, Europe if it continues trading? You can certainly see that, see that as a possibility. The, the US was very defense, close. Defense, for sure. Uh, not ju- I mean, not just defense. The US was very, the US effectively bullied the, sw- the entire Swiss banking system into transparency for the first time in Swiss history. 
because yeah. after 9-11, in Russia, because yeah. that's where the terrorists held their money. Um, and right yep. now, the Swiss are providing sort of freezing Russian payments to, to Russia. To Russia. Yep. Yep. And I don't know if they'd be doing that without, like, I, you know, love the Swiss, love living. Wait, there. and we're not, we're not going to argue that's a bad thing though, right? No, 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 no. But certainly... <laughs> that the, Swiss, but, the Swiss should probably open up the books to get rid of terrorism. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I will I will join you on the far edge. Take, of take the, the other side of that one. That that's okay. Ugh. It's just... <laughs> but Lada deserves credit to... I don't know. Um, <laughs> he deserves his privacy just like everyone yeah, else. Yeah, that's... But, but sort of... So, so you can see that situation. And so I think Macron's view is that a Europe that has taken more steps to shore up its independence from the U.S., has greater ability to either push back on or not walk in lockstep with a U.S. policy that on China may go further than is in Europe's perceived interest. That is the strongest framing of Macron's case I can make. Yeah, yeah, and I think I mean obviously I think you know I, you're doing a good job of what he what he sees the world, and I and you know it, at the very theoretical level it sounds like a nice thing, right? Like Europe yeah. should be able to be independent and self sufficient and all this other kind of stuff and not rely on America. But when you drill down just a couple of layers, if you have a basic understanding of what that means, it means that they need to be able to sell their arms around the world to places but they that do. well, no, but to places that do not depend on American. allowing it to happen so you know they need to be able to make the decision on who to sell arms to essentially without it being fettered as it were by america because of the dollar um and that's the only way that they'll be able to build up a domestic indigenous arms manufacturing business to the scale that is required to be credibly able to defend itself right so this is getting to the point you, you disagree with that I don't think that's that's the issue. You have, for example, Germany, which is a huge arms exporter everywhere in the world, and the reason Germany can't defend itself isn't that Heckler and Koch aren't producing enough guns. It's that Germany has for decades made the decision not to fund or, or operate a functioning Bundeswehr, and the fact that Europe collectively hasn't made nearly enough efforts to integrate its defense forces outside of a NATO context where they are over-reliant on the U.S. for a whole bunch of things that they don't right. want to invest in, like logistics. So I think that's the key. I think it's like an investment question, right? Like what, yeah. what arms company is going to genuinely spend the tr- probably trillions of dollars required to invest in building up a properly autonomous indigenous arms defense industry when it is still able to be... Ve- like if, Ch- if they built it around China and, and Russia and Iran, which are... And India, which are, you know, the maybe Brazil as well, which outside of the US and Europe are the biggest arms markets. Three of those countries overnight could be cut off because the US says no more, right? So that that's the biggest question. And then I think the second thing is that I want, this is the point that I wanted to get to is like, I think that strategic autonomy and what Macron is trying to do is in their, and I don't know if it's Europe, I want to say France, because I don't know how much Europe shares this, but in France's view, a world in which China rises and balances the US power and becomes a regional Asian hegemon, let's say, and st- and stops at that, which is a big assumption, by the way, doesn't try to overthrow international structures that France uses to its benefit, like the UN and the WTO mm. and all these other things that China has often said it wants to get rid of, but let's ignore all of that. It sees that as a better world than a world in which the U.S. continues 
it, it continues to be aligned closely with the US, dependent on the US, and pushing back against China. It sees the rise of China as a good thing, potentially, rather than a bad thing. See, I, I dis- or I'm not prepared to agree with you there, because I look at it, I think, well, firstly, I would disagree with the description that China wants to sort of destroy the UN and the WTO. I think they would like to reshape it a little bit more in their image, but they get a lot out of it too. But that's not really the thrust of your argument. The thrust of your argument is that France kind of welcomes the rise of China as a balance to US hegemony. Whereas I think where the French are at is like, China's rising. It's happening. That That is happening. And the US are treating that as DEFCON 1 existential threat. This town isn't big enough for the both of us. Oh my God, oh my God, because they are the US. And, you know, if you take the French characterization, they are used to being the world's only superpower. They view it as an existential threat to themselves. From the European perspective, they would go, well, it's not necessarily good for us that the US is no longer the world's sole superpower. Things were pretty predictable back then, at least. You know, the 90s and early aughts were pretty good for predictability. But France was irrelevant. Even more irrelevant, like it's, it's become more relevant now. And I think that's a big consi- a big thing is like France is becoming more relevant and that's that's a world that they like. They like, but I mean, but would they, is this the way that they would, I think they would love, if they would love it if China rising wasn't a, an issue at all, but the European Union just got its act together so much that it's five, 450 million consumers and it's, you know, worked so well and under French leadership, was just a challenge to the US economy just by mass and competence. They would be perfectly happy with that scenario. It's not like they're like, yes, China's rising. And I think the point is the the French perspective is China is rising, it's inevitable, but that doesn't have to be a threat to Europe necessarily, which I know you disagree with, and I frankly am not sold on. But from their perspective, it doesn't have to be a threat to it doesn't have to be a threat to Europe. In fact, there are some ways we can benefit from that, or at least there are benefits we're already getting from a richer China that we trade with. And the number one priority for Europe is to build up enough strategic autonomy that if the US tries to force the issue and drag us into it, we can we have options and we can make the choice on the day. Yeah, I mean, that, that seems like a fair positioning of France. I mean, I, I think this is the point. I've been very restrained. This is the point where I say I think it's an absurdly naive, wrong-headed view of the world and that it will it is, it is, will absolutely, you know... I actually, in a way, I think Macron's visit made an invasion of Taiwan more likely. Um, and, I'll t- and I think it, what it did is it made it very clear that Europe will not be able to impose unified financial costs, economic costs on China if it invades. Germany has said that it would, you know, oh, if, if, if China invaded Taiwan, there'd be, you know, costs to pay. Von der Leyen said that, you know, I think it was fairly believed in the European bloc that if China invaded Taiwan, there would be sanctions. I think, for, I think Macron's visit made it much less likely that Europe would be able to do that because it has to act as one to do that mm. kind of thing. Uh, and Beijing will be celebrating because they're going, okay, we're going to get, the US is going to impose military costs. We know that, we can plan for it. We're spending seven something percent of GDP on our military to absorb those costs and, you know, minimize those costs. But we know that, we know that cost, we can quantify it. And absent a miscalculation like Russia had made in Ukraine, we can, we can do that math and we can bear that cost. 
A big unknown was whether Europe will impose financial costs, economic costs. That became a lot less likely. And in the geopolitical parlance of costs and, and imposing costs, I think the, the price of invading Taiwan militarily, violently got a lot less because Macron decides that he's a fucking hero and understands that, you know, is playing 3D chess when the rest of the world is just idiotic. And I, like, I just, if I was, if I was in State Department or in the White House, I just, I, I you know, I, I actually weirdly admire Macron in a lot of ways. I admired his domestic political stance on the pension stuff and his ability to kind of seemingly put hard political decisions before his own kind of popularity. The idea that he thinks that he can get out in front of this with China and he alone is right on China, whereas the rest of the world is kind of, you know, not quite so sure, but he will lead us to the problem. It's just, I just think it's the definition of hubris and the kind of thing that if war is to be avoided in Taiwan, my view very clearly is that China needs to understand the costs are not possible. Like they can't bear those costs. Mm -hmm. And there needs to be some longer term political solution. Maybe you go to Hong Kong or whatever it is. I don't think China's going to give up on Taiwan, but they need to be absolutely told clearly that if you do this, the costs will destroy you. You can have a conversation about politics separately, but militarily, we cannot go to war. Now, I think France says the way not to go to war in Taiwan is not to go to war in Taiwan and let China do what it wants because they will stop at that. I think the US says we don't think China will stop at that. So we need to not go to war in Taiwan as well, but deterrence is the way to do that. And I'm so squarely in deterrence as the way to go about this than France is like, cross your fingers, hopefully sell them some arms, hopefully develop our own you know, autonomous fighting force. Of course, the risk here is that there is a war in Taiwan. China wins it. America is degraded. The US still doesn't, uh, so Europe doesn't have its own ability to defend itself. And that we're in a world where China really does dominate and no one can push back on them. And, th and that's how the 21st century changes and becomes the Chinese century in a way that I think if you were sitting in Beijing or if you're sitting in Moscow, the, 20, the 20th century was the US century. That's how it happens. I will disagree with that last that last point, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that being able to seize an, uh, a chain of islands sort of visible off your coastline or just across the Taiwan Strait would mean that China is the new global dominant power just because the US was unwilling or unable to go all the If way it won a war them. there, though, it would be. I mean, it would be, it would be winning a war with the people of Taiwan plus US naval assets half a world away from US bases in its own backyard. I think you could, I think there is a long journey between being able to take Taiwan and being the new global hegemon, as unthinkable as, as sort of we're glibbing over how horrific all of this is. But uh, I would disagree on that point. But I do think it's, it's probably time we, we summed up Yes. Because we've been, we, we could. I could talk about this for hours. I really could. This is this is essentially the 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 core, the crux of the biggest geopolitical dynamics on the planet right now is right is exactly this. I guess if if I were to to sum up, there is some theoretical logic to the French position around the abstract desirability of European strategic autonomy. I think you've made a very strong case that in the short term, that strategic autonomy is practically unobtainable. Europe is definitely not three or four years from being, a, being independent of the US strategically. And secondly, I think you've made a pretty strong case that the issue of Taiwan does exist. It is hugely pressing. And you've made a strong argument, at least, that this kind of open flirtation with strategic autonomy or 
going through the motions of the kind of thing you might do if you had strategic autonomy before you have it undermines Taiwan security and makes an invasion of Taiwan changes the equation. We always talk about the equation leaders have and it changes the equation. Yeah, and it makes it less likely you'll get that strategic autonomy, right? So I think that is a that is a good place for us to to wrap up our debate. I don't think either of us have convinced one another. I don't think either of us. Well, I, I didn't necessarily have the position I had from the beginning, and I don't still now. But hopefully, you found the discussion interesting and fascinating. Yeah. Well, I I enjoyed it. Hopefully, the audience did too. We can never count on that. So thank you again for for listening to us. Let me give our traditional plugs. Firstly, all of our content is as always based on the incredible work of the International Intrigue newsletter. Uh, It is free, it is funny, it is fun, and it brings stories onto your radar that would ordinarily fly below it if you get your news from most other sources. These guys read the news so you don't have to. I cannot recommend it enough. And its readers keep leaving truly cringeworthingly loving reviews on your stuff. So please do go sign up. The links are in the description of the podcast, yes, in do. the description of the video. They're everywhere. Please do it. If you like your news short but in podcast form, check out Intrigue Out Loud, the International Intrigue podcast, which is fantastic and has had some really great guests. Uh, I haven't yet had a chance um, to listen to the one with our former colleague, but uh, I really mm, do look forward to it. It's a good one. I know it'll be great. And he's a he's a seriously smart guy too. Like he's mm. got some very interesting things to say. <laughs> Despite being our Unlike. colleague, <laughs> some people. All right, that enough, used to work we're going to have enough of this uh, self-flagellation. <laughs> but it hurts so good. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I'm Dimitri from Explain Trade. With me is John from International Intrigue, and we hope you could join us for the next episode. Thanks so much. Mm.